back in 1998, Bank of Canada did make a 100 basis point rate hike. And keep in mind, inflation back then was a lot more tame than it is right now as well. Welcome to Views from the Desk, a special edition of the BMO ETFs podcast. In these timely episodes, we provide the latest investment news and expert commentary on the markets, the economy, and investing. Brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management. Last week, the Bank of Canada raised its key interest rate by 50 basis points, its biggest hike in over two decades. In today's episode, Portfolio Managers Alfred Lee and Chris Heeks, along with your host Mark Rays, discuss expectations for the rest of the year and implications for bond markets, as well as inflation, the metals markets, high-yield bond strategies, and an insightful look into the construction and evaluation of ESG ETFs. Before we hear from the team, please consider subscribing to Views from the Desk on your preferred podcast platform. And for many more ETF insights and resources, visit the new and improved Canadian ETF dashboard at bmoetfs.ca. Hello, and welcome to our BMO ETF weekly insight call with our team of experts. I'm your host, Mark Rays, head of product for BMO Global Asset Management. I'd like to thank everyone for listening in today. We really appreciate you doing so. Today, we're joined by two portfolio managers, Alfred Lee and Chris Heeks. Thanks to both of you for making the time today. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark. Good to be here. Excellent. Well, good morning. Let's get right at it. We saw the Bank of Canada come out and raise overnight rates by 50 basis points last week. The market consensus is certainly that this is the first of multiple moves this year with inflation running as hot as it is. So if you look ahead, what is the expectation now for the remainder of 2022? And what does it mean for bond markets? as we see the longer yields, including the 10-year yield, continue to drift higher. Put it in context, that 10-year yield is up over 140 basis points since year-end. So do you continue to see ZAG, our aggregate bond ETF, underperforming? Thanks. Yeah, so a pretty big move by the Bank of Canada last week. It's first move that was more than a quarter point uh, in more than two decades. So. Um, you know, this could be the start of the new normal. Uh, when I'm looking at uh, market expectations for rate hikes for the remainder of the year, the market is pricing in the next two moves to be a high probability that the Bank of Canada will do a 50 basis point rate hike for the, both of those next two meetings. Uh, we don't know whether that's going to transpire or not. Obviously, a lot can happen between now and then. But a good indicator coming out of the Fed, even though this it's a different central bank, James Bullard, who's one of the key guys at the Fed, is not ruling out uh, what what he's calling a jumbo rate hike of 75 basis points if necessary. So you know, a lot of these massive moves may be new for some, um, but back in 1998, Bank of Canada did make a 100 basis point rate hike. And keep in mind, inflation back then was a lot more tame than it is right now as well. So in terms of um, you know what the market is anticipating for the remainder of the year, uh, just looking at the OIS market, pricing in seven to eight more quarter point hikes by the end of the year. Uh, this means the overnight rate hike by the end of the year should be around 2.75 to 3%. Certain Fed members have come out and said that they want their overnight rate to be 3.5% by the year uh, by year end. Uh, when I'm comparing CPI numbers, both north and south of the border, 
it does make sense that we would end up with a lower overnight rate in Canada, given that inflation um, is lower in Canada than the U.S. At, at current times. But in terms of your question, in terms of uh, whether you know Zag will continue to underperform, it's really hard to determine whether, uh, given that we don't know, you know, how many more rate hikes we're going to see. We don't know the pace of rate hikes, and we don't know the shape of the yield curve by the end of the year, and we don't know whether the Bank of Canada is going to pause at some point. What I will say is this. I don't know, you know how much more hawkish expectations could get at this point. Um, I think when you look at the inflationary problems, you know, you could, you could say that a lot of it is supply chain driven. So maybe as we start to learn to live with COVID and, you know, a lot of economies are moving more towards treating it as an endemic, maybe the supply chain start unlocking themselves and it improves, you know, inflation gradually. So I think the more prudent thing for the Bank of Canada to do is, you know, at some point in the summer and fall, maybe they take a pause and look at, you know, assess what the effects of higher interest rates and, and you know, um, wait for the effects trickle into the economy. Uh, it also opens up the door for forward guidance. I, I think at that point, it's going to be a much more effective tool at taming inflation. But I think the likelihood that the Bank of Canada comes in less hawkish is going to be a higher probability than the market or, you know, the bank end up coming in even more hawkish than what the market is already in, given that expectations are pretty aggressive at this point. So I think all that should be good for Zag. Um, keep in mind also that the yield to maturity on Zag now is 3.2%. At some point, you know, yield to maturity is going to get to a point where it's going to become even attractive for, you know, equity investors. And they're going to look at that yield to maturity and say, you know, I'm willing to forego the potential growth in equities in order to lock in that rate that I'm seeing in the fixed income market. I don't think we're there yet, but you know, keep in mind, this is what happened in the early 1980s as well. Um, I think some key indicators that invest, investors could look at is real rates. So you know, the yield minus CPI, also the trend in the CPI is also gonna be a good indicator as well. Uh, what I will say, however, is that even though a lot of investors are overweight equities at this point, it still makes sense to have bond in your in your portfolios. I think, you know, the end of February when we saw that Russian invasion and we saw bonds stabilize the portfolio, I think that's a good example of why bonds are still important in the portfolio. Great. Thanks for that, Alfred. And as you say, the market's being extremely hawkish right now. We have the worst quarter uh, going back in over 30 years in the bond market. So certainly... Uh, if you look at something like ZAG, uh, you've gone through a rough patch. So with that rising yield, you've got that potential for, of course, increased income, but also a bit more of a buffer if, if future uh, price uncertainty comes into play. Now, you've touched on inflation as well, because, of course, that does tie into the yield curve. Um, but I want to get a little more specific. It might be early days, but we're starting to see market analysts talk about peak inflation. So really, how realistic is that if you look over the remainder of the year, or is it still a ways off? And what does that potentially mean for growth strategies, such as our innovation ETF at INN? And when do we start to think about that as an entry point, you know, considering the, the correction that that type of ETF has had? Thanks. For sure. Thanks, Mark. I'll jump in on this one. I think the talk about being at peak inflation it's probably pretty fair. You know, we're probably pretty close to peak inflation right now. And if you look at what the, uh, the federal, you know, the, the central banks are doing, they're raising interest rates really in response to inflation. 
you know, their two priorities being inflation and unemployment, you know, unemployment's pretty good. So there's no reason not to raise rates to combat the high inflation. So, you know, the thought being by the end of this kind of hiking style, hiking cycle, this will help bring that inflation down under control. So we're likely at peak inflation. I think the pace of decrease is the one where you could probably have a lot of really good arguments right now. So how long are we going to stay near the peak before we come off? Um, you know, and, and it's obviously very, very difficult to predict that. But, you know, I, I think I think we are at the peak. And, you know, the data suggests that, that equities do relatively well um, when you're coming down off that inflation peak. Um, the S&P median return in a falling inflation environment is about 12%. So equities can be a good inflation hedge as inflation has peaked and as it's coming down off the peak. Circling back to, to ZINN, you know, a growth strategy, there's been no doubt that higher interest rates have, you know, been a headwind for kind of more growth strategies, you know, particularly tech. You know, we've seen the NASDAQ underperform this year and, and ZINN is kind of like a NASDAQ with a little bit of extra NASDAQ juice. And I don't mean to say that to scare anyone off, but you just want to understand what you're buying. On the upside, you know, is that INN offers that potential for really outsized returns over time, but you just recognize the volatility profile. Um, you know, I think when I think about the innovations, I think about what are you investing in? You're investing in mega trends. And what is a mega trend? It could be fintech, AI, automation, uh, innovation, and healthcare. You know, all these things that INN, you know, puts them all together and we've got subcomponent uh, strategies as well. But, you know, it's a mega trend and the trends are going to play out over years and decades. So I think what you want to do as an investor with these products is I think one way to approach it is, is time horizon, right? Give yourself that time. So if you've got 20, 30, 40 years, let's say you're a 45 year old investor, you know, you're going to live you're probably your lifespan, you know, it's probably expected to go to 80, 85 years. You've got a long time horizon. You can put this, I don't think you need to think about timing. You can buy it and you can hold on to it for 30 years. And I don't think you even have to worry about it. You know, I would say on the other hand, if you are worried about making money this year, you know, I think it's an attractive entry point, but I would just, you know, personally, I'd be cautious and I'd look to build a position between now and call it a year from now. Like Alfred says, we still have a lot of uh, interest rate hikes to deal with. There's kind of two ways to look at it. We've come a long way off the bottom, but there's still room, you know, like I'm looking at 30-year interest rates on the U.S. Treasuries at 3% now. You know, it was like, it was literally, you know, half that almost to start the year. But, you know, a 20-year average is probably closer to 4%. So could 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 the 30-year go from 3 to 4%? Could, could easily do that in a hiking cycle. And that could be a negative for ZINN in a short term. Uh, that being said, we're 20% under where the product was listed last year. So, you know, buying things cheaper always tends to be, you know, tends to work out as well. So I would approach it cautiously if you're kind of on a shorter term time horizon, build the position over a year. You got a long time horizon. I think you, I think, you know, you can just make, make that time horizon your friend, um, buy it now and, and just, you know, don't look at it for 30 years. And I think it's likely going to be a pretty good outcome. So that's, that's how I'd approach innovation. Great. Thanks for that, Chris. And, and certainly buying on dips is, is an effective strategy to build up that position. I don't know if any of us can resist looking at our portfolio over 30 years, but certainly a long-term horizon makes sense here. Introducing the new and improved ETF dashboard at BMOETFs.ca. 
From the latest strategies and insight to trade ideas, podcasts, and the digital ETF roadmap, the Enhanced Dashboard features everything you loved before and more. Visit bmoetfs.ca, that's bmoetfs.ca, and bookmark now for one-click access. I want to switch gears and head over to ESG, as uh, ESG strategies have certainly come under scrutiny of late, uh, both from performance and then of late, we had the Globe and Mail, amongst other publications, uh, writing pieces that essentially question the validity of the, the rating services when companies receive different ratings from, from different services. With our ESG leaders ETFs, how are securities measured and what makes MSCI a leader in this space? Can you put it in context with ESGA, our Canadian ESG leaders ETF? Thanks. Well, thanks. And, uh, you know, I think I think the concern with ESG comes down to, um, you know, our companies who are launching ESG products like like BMO is, uh, but many companies are launching the products. And it's this idea of greenwashing that is concerned to, you know, both consumers and regulators um, and, and obviously fodder for the press as well. Um, you know, are companies just slapping an ESG label on it in order to sell product or is there actually integrity behind it with the construction methodology. Um, you know, one of the additional challenges is that ESG can also mean, you know, different things to different people. But, you know, to step back, ESG, it's environmental, social, and governance. You know, it's a mix of all those three things. It's not just environmental. I think we, we often associate ESG just with environmental, but it's all three of those things. And, you know, like you said, BMO's partnered with MSCI. And, you know, I'll go back to that statement on integrity. You want to have integrity in the space. If you look at MSCI as a company, you know, they really came out of the academic framework, really leaders in factor investing, you know, many, many years ago before it was a thing and risk modeling, you know, they developed a, you know, risk model and BARA and that's part of the MSCI brand now. Uh, so there's a lot of academic integrity to MSCI. You know, they've resourced themselves very well. And, and consequently, you know, with all the ESG analyst capacity they have, um, they're the world's largest ESG provider. So, again, it's about having a meaningful partner, someone who, who really, um, you know, is committed to that, that ESG and, um, you, know, um, you know, demonstrates that in its, um, you know, its activities. So I think MSCI is, it is really the gold standard in ESG. Um, you know, like I said, ESG means different things to different investors. So, you know, you can never, with any product, you can never make anyone totally happy, but you know, you put, you put your best foot forward and that's what I think BMO's done with the MSCI partnership and, you know, putting your best foot forward, I think is also a great way to define the methodology just to expand on what ESG leaders means, which is the, the brand of our equity ESG indexes. ESG leaders, again, doesn't mean it's only the very best but it means it's much better than the average. So, you know, at a high level, you know, it breaks down the universe, breaks down each sector, actually. Also using Canada's example, looks at all the companies in each sector and tries to hold, you know, identify the top half um, from an ESG perspective um, within each sector. And then, you know, market cap weights, those top performing. So again, it's a top half. It's about having, you know, good ESG, environmental, social, and government practices. Um, there's also exclusions to take out, you know, those kind of real obvious ESG offenders, uh, like nuclear weapons and thermal coal, that kind of stuff. 
um, and it seeks to hold that top half. So it's a very uh, robust methodology that that identifies companies with better ESG uh, policies and, and uh, business activities. And you know, again, MSCI rates. Don't know the exact number, Mark. Maybe you do, but it's going to be tens of thousands of companies globally. And, and again, that they have a very robust team uh, to do that. So you know, that's that's how it plays out. You know, in terms of investing, again, it's because we're taking fifty percent on each sector. We're not just loading up on one sector versus another. It's going to be a very balanced portfolio relative to the broad beta, and that's that's really the philosophy. It's not looking to be a ton different at a high level, looking to have the same overall risk drivers, you know, like in Canada, it's financials, there's still some energy in the ESG portfolio, obviously. Um, But, you know, within energy tends to be more pipelines focused and and some other energy companies rather than the drillers, which tend to have a higher environmental impact. Um, So, but there's still energy in the portfolio and that, so that helps you get those broad beta, uh, very similar returns to the broad beta. And that, you know, maybe just to put a final comment on it, something I found very useful just in preparing to answer this question was our own uh, dashboard uh, marks of the BMO, BMOETFS.ca um, rebranded. And there's a strategy insights tab. You can click that and then click on responsible investing. There's a couple great tools there as well as white papers, you know, that go into the process a little bit deeper. Um, and like I said, a couple of great tools, so links to tools where you can actually type in an ETF ticker and see how, you know, really put some data behind is the fund truly ESG, you know, that, that's kind of where this concern of this article is coming from. But you can type in the ticker and you can see is it ESG, you can type in individual securities as well if you want to look at the profile. So I'll, I just thought I'd plug that dashboard because there's a lot of great insights as it revolves around uh, ESG investing. Great. Thanks for that, Chris. And if I can just jump in with a few supporting points. Uh, one of the reasons we chose to work with MSCI in, in this space in the ESG is not only are they a leading index provider, but you, you certainly mentioned the idea that they are a leading uh, research firm as well. And, and their, their ESG team, uh, you know, with hundreds of people supporting this as part of the business, uh, really is is top-notch and is, is an excellent part of what they offer. Um, and then to the article, you know, there was a, a bit of a complaint that different different rating services will give, give companies different ratings. You know, and a lot of that is going to depend on the approach, where with MSCI, we like that we compare on the basis of like companies and on issues that matter to those companies. So in other words, you know, something like water usage is going to be more pertinent for you know, a soft drink company than it is for a bank, right? That's the example we always use. And so because of that, you can see differences between the rating services, not necessarily a bad thing, but understood that there's there's a need for some consistency there. And then the other comment was just uh, about holding some of the top names in the, in the TSX index. And that's deliberate because we are targeting half the market cap. So, you know, it depends again, as an investor, what your choice is. Uh, do you really want to go after a, a concentrated higher risk portfolio or with an ETF approach, do you want a more diversified market approach uh, so that you're not getting other surprises in the portfolio? So just like anything else, uh, investors have decisions that they can make about what's the most appropriate product for them. Uh, but we're certainly very confident in the ESG leader suite. Okay, so let's uh, let's switch over to a sector conversation now. 
And I'd like to check in, in on our global base metals ETF, ZMT, as advisors have been asking if there's still room in this trade, considering it's had a strong start to the year, already up close to around 25%. Now, clearly, inflation is a key driver here, but are there other factors as well in the metals market that investors should consider? Thanks. Yeah, so a very strong start, um, for sure, in ZMT. Uh, but I think there's a couple of stories going on right now in base metals. Um, I think if you're looking at the economic cycle, so typically when you consider, you know, where base metals tend to perform well during the economic cycle, it, it tends to be at an early stage in the expansionary phase. Um, so I think if you are uh, looking at that and just investing based on the economic cycle, I think, you know, you could argue that perhaps it's peak. Um, inflation has definitely been a big story as well. I would probably side with Chris in, in saying that we probably are pretty close to peak inflation as well. Um, but I think potentially there's, you know, more than uh, the economic cycle and the inflation story going on with commodities in general right now. And I think base metals is a, is a large part of that discussion. So um, a lot of people are talking about this commodity super cycle. So guys like, you know, Jeff Curry at Goldman Sachs are saying that we're seeing the beginning of the next commodity super cycle. Um, so after you know we saw commodity prices um, plunge in 2014, very little capital expenditure has been spent on commodities. So we often talk about you know that supply and demand being out of balance in the oil market, but we're definitely seeing that across the entire commodity complex as well. So I think as the economy starts to come back online, we're going to see that demand and supply further exacerbated as well. Um, I think you know a lot of the um, economists, they tend to point towards an indicator. So, you know, how stocks stocks are trading relative to commodities. So when you look at that relationship, uh, commodities, even though we've seen uh, quite a rise in commodity prices over the last couple of months, they're trading relatively cheap versus stocks at this point. So definitely, you know, when you're looking at that, that proof point for commodities, that commodity super cycle, I think there is a lot of good evidence that we are seeing the next, you know, start of uh, the next super cycle. On top of that, I think, you know, another story that a lot of investors are missing is the electric vehicle market. So many cars have or many car makers have announced uh, plans to move towards, you know, moving towards electric vehicles. Some of them have been very aggressive as well. So, for example, when you look at GM, they've stated that they want to be all electric by 2035. Jaguar has been the most aggressive, so they want to be all electric by 2025. Um, so in order to get there, I mean, we're going to need a lot of demand for base metals. So when you look at, you know, for a full electric vehicle, uh, in terms of copper wiring, there's 80 kilograms of uh, copper wiring per vehicle. So when you compare that to, you know, a traditional gasoline powered car, uh, it's four times the amount. And it's also double the amounts of a, of a hybrid vehicle as well. Um, also saw some estimates in terms of if you take, you know, the global, global number of cars on the road. And if you assume just a 10% shift towards electric vehicles, the copper demand would increase by 20%. And not to mention, you know, when you look at electric vehicles, it also needs, you know, things like cobalt, lithium, aluminum, and other base metals as well. So I think that all of that's, you know, a pretty good story for ZMT, even though we've seen a pretty significant rise in ZMT already. I think there's more uh, behind that story. It's not just simply an inflation story. It's not simply just a economic cycle story. I think if this uh, commodity super cycle story does have legs, and if we factor in the growth of electric vehicles, I think there is potentially more upside in ZMT. But 
So keep in mind when you're using ZMT in your portfolio, you know, I, I definitely would not say it's a core position, but if you don't have any commodity exposure in your portfolio and depending on, you know, what the rest of your portfolio looks like, maybe a five to 10% position in your portfolio, I think that's going to be more than adequate. Great. Thanks for that, Alfred. And certainly interesting here about the different drivers in the market. It's, it's not just an inflation story when you think about base metals. As advisors grapple with rising interest rates, market uncertainties, and the impact of geopolitical tensions, advisors are looking to provide uncomplicated, diverse solutions for their clients. Join portfolio manager and investment strategist Alfred Lee as he explores one sector to consider, commodities, with a focus on oil and gas, gold, and base metals. This special webinar streams Thursday, April 28th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Register today at BMOETFsForum.com. Got one more question for today. Uh, I had a couple of advisors come in asking about positioning in high-yield bonds. Certainly concerns about the interest rate curve, so high-yield bonds is a good way to certainly diversify that exposure. And if we look at credit spreads, they, they widen quite significantly early in the year. However, how have they been doing of late? And can you put this in context with our high-yield bond ETFs ZJK for the unhedged, and ZHY for the hedged exposure. Thanks. When looking at high yield spreads, they've definitely widened over the last couple of months. So initially, they widened on that Russian invasion. So I think, um, you know, after after the the next couple of weeks after that invasion, I think a lot of investors were de-risking their portfolios. Um, high yield spreads on the back of that uh, widened out to about 410 basis points in early March. They tightened in the um, you know the weeks following that, but you know, just looking at where they are this morning, it's back to about 410 basis points. So I think there's a couple of things going on with high yield high yield bonds right now. I think the initial reaction in early March, uh, based on that Russian invasion, was pretty reactionary. I think you know when you look at the high yield bond market and the high yield issuers in general, I would say most of them are pretty well insulated from you know what's going on in Ukraine. Um, I think refinancing was part of the concern as well. So when you look at, you know, the refinancing needs of the index, only about 2.5% of the index needs to refinance over the next two years and a half. So I think, you know, the threats of that refinancing, I I think, is pretty much overblown. Um, But I think what investors are currently concerned about in the high-yield bond market right now is the potential rollover in the economy. So um, just looking at when high-yield spreads started widening out again in early April, it was roughly around that time when they when the U.S. yield curve temporarily inverted um, a couple of weeks ago. So I think you know, that essentially scared some of the investors in the high yield market. Um, also, when you look at which segment of the high yield market has been underperforming over the last couple of weeks, it's been the triple C segment, which tends to be you know, the most economically sensitive. Um, I think higher interest rates have also had an impact on the high yield bond market, given that you know investors over the last ten years they've been going into to places like high yield bonds uh, in order to stretch for yield. Uh, but I think as interest rates have moved back up, I think some of those investors have moved back into the investment grade market. So just looking at you know the yield to maturity on ZIC and ZMU, which is our midterm U.S. investment grade ETFs, yield to maturity is about 4% right now. So some investors may be looking at that and saying you know the risk reward may be better in the investment grade market. But I think you know, if you have a long-term horizon, so if you're willing to look three to four years out, 
Uh, and just looking at, you know, where high yield spreads are right now. So again, you know, 410 basis points above federal bonds. I don't think those spreads are sustainable. I mean, you know, can they get wider? Maybe. Um, but I think over the long term, that's not generally where spreads tend to be. Generally, they're around 270 to 280 basis points above federal bonds. So again, if you're looking further out and if you're willing to, um, you know, not look at your portfolio over the next three to four years, uh, I think there is potential opportunities in the high yield space. And especially if you get that exposure through an ETF like ZJK or ZHY, um, I think through that diversification, you can mitigate a lot of that, you know, company specific risk. And also when you look at the yield to maturity and, and ZJK, 6.4% right now. So that definitely helps you offset some of those concerns about volatility. So I think, you know, if you're looking at risk risk to, to reward, I think, may be more attractive in, in the investment grade space. But I think if you're looking at potential upside, I think right now would be a potential good opportunity for the high yield uh, bond market if you're looking three to four years out. Great. Thanks for that update, Alfred. And as you say, uh, it's all about identifying those opportunities and being able to, to wait it out a little bit in your portfolio. But certainly a lot of interest in high yield bonds right now. Uh, with with the general movement going on with the interest rate curve. That's all the questions we have for today. So I want to thank everyone for listening in. We really appreciate your time. And of course, thanks go out to both Chris and Alfred. Uh, some really good updates today. Thanks for covering a lot of different areas of the market and giving us things to think about as we go back and, and look at our own portfolios and our own discussions with clients. So with that, I just want to thank everyone one last time for listening in and have a great day. Thank you to Mark Rays, Alfred Lee, and Chris Heeks for joining us on the BMO ETFs podcast. Today, we heard about the BMO MSCI Innovation Index ETF, ticker ZINN, which offers the potential for outsized returns in the long term through exposure to innovation megatrends. Our experts also discussed the BMO Equal Weight Global Base Metals Hedged Canadian Dollar Index ETF, ticker ZMT, which is poised to benefit from an emerging commodity supercycle and a growing electric vehicles market. For more information about the ETFs discussed in this podcast, check out the episode notes, contact your regional BMO ETF specialist, or visit the new and improved Canadian ETF dashboard at bmoetfs.ca. That's bmoetfs.ca. The viewpoints expressed by the portfolio managers represent their assessment of the markets at the time of publication. Those views are subject to change without notice at any time without any kind of notice. The information contained herein is not and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice to any party. Investments should be evaluated relative to the individual's investment objectives, and professional advice should be obtained with respect to any circumstance. Any statement that necessarily depends on future events may be a forward-looking statement. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of performance. Views from the Desk has been brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management.